Hi, this is Zach Semke with PassFast Accelerator, and thanks for tuning in to this special bonus episode of the PassFast podcast, recorded at Passive House Network's 2023 conference in Denver, Colorado. And a big thank you to Enersign for the support of the series. The interview you're about to hear was hosted by Mary James, our Director of Publications and co-host of the PassFast podcast. Okay, well, Timothy Locke from Opal Architecture, thank you very much for stopping by. Sure. Um, well, first off, thanks for having me, Mary. I appreciate uh, you taking the time and to be here with you today. Um, so Opal was the architecture side of the practice that was originally founded as Geologic in Maine. Um, it's a long history in Passive House. Um, and about five years ago, given the scale of the projects we were working on, um, we made the decision to split the companies uh, in two, um, with the architecture side becoming Opal. Um, same people, same architects, same practice, same direction. Um, we still share the same office space with, uh, with Geologic, um, but um, the intent was to focus all of that energy that had been driven towards small uh, passive House and the nascent stages of Passive House uh, development in the U.S. into bigger buildings that could leverage more square footage, uh, larger projects, potentially broader sustainability goals than just Passive House. Um, and that's been our trajectory ever since. Um, so larger institutional work, um, multifamily, um, and even starting to look at things like... Um, biogenic retrofits of existing buildings, and it has also spurred off a second company now called Opal Build, which is fabricating um, mass timber and wood fiber insulation passive house level wall panels in Belfast as well, Belfast, which is where we're located. How long has that been going on? That uh, started about, about a year and a half ago. Um, and we're kind of in the stages of building out a factory um, for those panels. And the intent with that is to deliver components for buildings, not to um, kind of deliver soup to nuts um, installed buildings or modular buildings. It's to be able to sell um, the types of wall systems that we think the market needs to larger scale construction managers um, or smaller scale buildings for developers that are building out larger tracts of land all over the country, hopefully. And it's in the early stages and see where that goes. But, uh, we have our hands in a lot of different things <laughs> at Opal, always have. So um, you have your factory site identified and the factory is under construction? or Yeah, so we, ha- we took over a... Um, old armory building in Belfast. Um, And so we're using that right now. It had a big open gymnasium that was really conducive to doing uh, fabrication. And that's happening um, right now. And we'll see where things go as far as scale, like whether the site needs more capacity than that or not. Um, So far, the projects we've been able to execute um, with that team have been 
I'd say more on like the case study st- uh, side of things, smaller projects that are closer afield so we can kind of prove the concept out. And, um, you know, we'll see whether the market is out there for scalar growth. We think it is. Um, but it's conducive to a specific type of building, you know, and that's why it's so great to have the architectural design practice working in concert with a fabrication practice because we know from the architecture side that not all the buildings that we want to take passive house levels of performance and biogenic materials to are conducive to prefabrication and vice versa. And so it's really about the two companies understanding how they can lift each other up and not really about like traditional kind of more, um, let's say blinders on view of design build, um, that, these approaches don't always necessarily um, go together on the same, same exact project. Um, so all the architecture practice continues to kind of like push the boundaries of what types of buildings we can bring passive house and biogenics to. The build practice is more about like the repetition and scale of very specific projects that benefit from prefabrication. And do you want to tell us, you said specific building types, do you yeah. want to name those? Sure. So, you know, multifamily specifically um, and repeated detached single family is a really good fit for prefab um, because you can make the same thing over and over again. You know, the types of buildings that we're designing at Opal proper um, aren't necessarily always that and in fact are rarely that. They're a lot of our work is either highly customized residential or large scale like academic institutional work where clients want something that's distinctive and different and there's a, it's challenging to make that repetitive or even if you could can it doesn't necessarily fit the needs of the site or the client and it's pretty clear early on that trying to force those things together didn't help either (laughs) Um, and so getting more specific makes more sense Um, and we had the history of work on the architecture side already to kind of know where that was going so it had you know in the equation of figuring out what we do we at least had a constant wasn't two variables (laughs) so it's helpful yeah and um, as long as you mentioned your um, educational buildings can you tell us just briefly about I know um, you have two projects that you've done for College of the Atlantic, one that's been finished and occupied for two years, is it? Yeah, two years. Two years last month. And then another one that's, what stage is that at? That um, is supposed to be done uh, for their winter semester. They're on, or winter trimester, sorry. Um, they're on a trimester program. They're supposed to be able to move into it in January. That's a dorm, student dorm. Great. Well, can you tell us a little sure. bit about both of those? Because they're great. Very happy projects. to. It's um, a client that's near and dear to me. Um, I, When we got the job, one of the things that I said was I, I grew up 30 minutes from that campus. And I'm the only person in our practice that's a, someone who grew up in Maine. And just kind of funny because we have a, you know, a medium-sized practice, a lot of architects, and now build staff as well um and um it really was kind of like coming home 
you know, this is a campus that sits across the street from a trail that goes into Acadia National Park. And I spent my entire childhood climbing all those mountains, hiking those mountains with my parents. And um, to be able to work on that campus was just a total dream for me. It started with a collaborative project with um, Susan T. Rodriguez, architecture and design, where her and I worked together on the first building, which is an academic building, 28,000 square foot academic building. And the interesting thing about that client um, from a perspective of, say, a passive house uh, crowd or your audience is that um, they came with the most robust sustainability metrics that I've ever seen. They basically, um, because their governance is very horizontal and they let these student groups dictate what their policy is, had pre-selected all of the best and hardest criteria from all of the certifications. So they combed through Passive House, Living Building Challenge, Well Building, and Lead, and picked the ones that they thought had real teeth, and they were the right ones, and gave us a nine-page document. It was like, you got to hit all of these things. And the first thing we did was like say, okay, that's great. That's really exciting for us because this is what we love to see. And um, happy to meet you there, even on things that we've never had to do before. It'll be fun for us. But first off, let's just see what ones actually apply to this building. And so you could kind of siphon off a few. But it truly was the, the type of project that is something I like to say is like beyond sustainability. I mean, they were trying to make something that was transformative and ecological and not... Um, not just something that hit marks because it had to hit all these marks. And um, they did it at the same time as having spaces within the building where they're literally dissecting whale carcasses. <laughs> that's very challenging. Yeah, right? that was what really struck me is there was such a variety of uses yeah. within the building. Yeah. It's a very small campus. So they have, at the same time as they have, you know, working science labs, dissection uh, studios, they also have painting studios and printmaking, which have their own ventilation requirements, which is extremely challenging. Um, so it has spaces that need to go up to 12 air changes an hour at the same time as spaces that are just general classroom which and offices, which are at you know 0.3 air changes per hour or something normally. And the ventilation system on that building alone was 42% of the heat loss. It's like huge, um, even more than we typically see in the past past world where we're used to 100% outdoor air. And there's an entire room in the basement for the direct outdoor air system, which is 30 feet long by 9 feet tall and 9 feet wide. The biggest ERV I've ever seen. <laughs> and um, it works great. I mean, two years in, it's still just an incredibly comfortable building to be in. We have almost a full year of post-occupancy data from, from the... Um, from their main panel and it's tracking almost exactly where we expected their total energy use to be, which is super exciting. Um, and it's like, after this many years of doing Passive House, I don't, I'm never shocked by that, but I'm always a little nervous if it doesn't prove out, you know? And especially on a project that big that had so many demands, like to see that the, that the concept that is Passive House is working even in that scenario was great. And then to be able to bring to it kind of early mass timber building, like we weren't able to go full CLT because it wasn't available really at that point we were buying out the project at that scale. Um, but it's all blue mass timber locally sourced and then solid wood decking. So 
really kind of leveraging carbon sequestration too. And they even had like new criteria that we weren't exposed to yet. Like they were one of the early adopters of bird safe glass in the US at, at that scale. Um, and, and a lot of things that just now are commonplace in all of our projects. And it really pushed us to expand our framework. And so when they came to the second building, you know, I, at this point had a really close working relationship with their president, Darren Collins. And, you know, it was a dorm building and it had a tighter budget and like a tighter timeline and had to be a little bit more streamlined. It's obviously a single use. I was like, okay, but on this one, Darren, we're going to go the full deal. We're going to go full mass timber and CLT. We're going to go full wood wall system and we're going to use Timber HP, which is like our third, that third company out there in our orbit making wood fiber. And they're one of the first to get actual Timber HP fill off the line. Just got blown into the walls two weeks ago. So we're there videotaping and Darren and I are <laughs> making videos like, Faking walking through the building and touching the walls. <laughs> and, uh, have a client like that is like just for any of us that are in the space and at this conference, it's just such a dream um, that they're willing to go there. And it never, ever were any of the sustainability criteria of the building on the table for cutting. They at that point had learned enough about the passive house portion to know that insulation is cheaper than mechanical systems. So that was never going to be a discussion point. But even the more, um, you know, the more challenging uh, financially criteria that they were stretching for, like, say, mass timber, they're like, no way. We're not even going to compare it to a steel building. I don't want to see the numbers. That's not leaving the project. And that's not something we get all the time. It's a, it's a dream client because of that. But it also allows us to, like, really push, do something really great, show that it can be done. And then you take it to the next project and nobody can say you haven't done it before. Really important to have those projects. And um, just very briefly, how are the mechanical systems in the new building? Ah, sure. So the new building also has an interesting mechanical um, solution. So we've been working with, um, wasn't the mechanical engineer that we used on the, on the um, Center of Human Ecology, which is the academic building. Um, we've been working really closely with uh, Tatum out of Ithaca. And Tatum just has such a clearly aligned ethos with what we do. And I always like to tell people, you see this name Tatum, and you don't realize that Ian Traeger, who started this company, it's actually an acronym. Technology as if the earth mattered is the name of the company. You don't get mechanical engineers really that kind of get it all the time. Like a lot of times I find myself like educating mechanical engineers on projects, which is something I think a lot of passive house architects do, but it's not the best situation that we could hope for, but to have people that already kind of came in and were ready to kind of innovate just the way the systems were set up. So one thing that we realized quite quickly is that because of the loads on this dorm building was so low, it's something that I've been wanting to do ever since seeing it in German passive houses, dormitory passive houses in Europe. That like, what if we were to just like literally uh, heat and ventilate with all the same ductwork as the CFMs are quite close? Um, and what that did was allow us to just we took four ventacity units and just ran DX coils from the heat pump condensers on the roof directly into them and just pushed all the air through the same ductwork. Um, similar to the, what we have for kind of packaged through wall units now for multifamily, but at a large scale. 
And what that did was like kind of totally break that cost comparative um, ratio that a lot of uh, HVAC installers use for heat pumps and ventilation. And it was incredibly affordable because we eliminated an entire system of ductwork. The other cool thing about it is that one of the things we're learning in embodied and embodied emissions we start to really study our life cycle analyses is that one of the key contributors to embodied emissions is refrigerant and it's often not measured. And this is like my sneaky passive house approach to embodied is that what do we learn from passive house from the very beginning? Um, what, what was Wolfgang Feist's original notion is that we can just be using a lot less of these things. So how do you solve the refrigerant problem in a world where we need refrigerant? Well, yeah, there are lower embodied emissions refrigerants out there, but what if we just use way, way less of it by situating a condenser right next to a ventilator and having a very, very short run refrigerant that's cycling back? That's a passive house approach, right? It's not passive house specifically um, because it's not applying to those criteria, but that's the type of approach we want to bring to everything. It's like, first question should be, how much less of this can we use? And they came up with that. Like, I didn't drive them there, but it's now something I'm trying to use on almost every project if I can get the loads to match. And it was really, really good, brilliant solution that they had. And now there's also not a bunch of like heat pumps on the wall in every dorm, which is nice too. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, before I let you go, I just have sure. to pick up on, you mentioned biogenic retrofits. Yeah. Can you talk a little about that? Absolutely. So part of the, some of the um, advocacy, advocacy work that I do um, for the other hat I wear, which is um, being on leadership for uh, American Institute of Architects National. Um, I'm a strategic counselor, which is, a, you can think of as like the legislative body of AIA. Um, is work on just full decarbonization of um, you know the U.S.'s built environment and trajectory towards that. And one of the key components to that is retrofits, and it's like something we talk about. We've talked about in passive house for a long time, obviously, um, but the kind of like hidden cost of a retrofit scenario is the amount of increased embodied emissions that you have to add to a project when you're doing a deep energy retrofit. You're adding a lot of mass to a building that you're not demolishing. And it starts to tilt the scales towards the importance of embodied on those projects and how do we think about it. Um, and so um, I had the pleasure this year of working directly with Rocky Mountain Institute, um, their carbon-free buildings division, on how best to kind of deal with those retrofits. And they had this great paper that came out in February um, that was authored by that division that I had a chance to peer review. And one of the things that they were really pushing for is we need biogenic retrofit options. Now, we just happen to also have just created this wood fiber insulation plant. So there's a good crossover there between uh, those two initiatives. So the idea there is to look at existing building stock types. Most of this is multifamily and realize the need to not demolish all that and rebuild it, but to actually make it just perform better and not take a huge embodied carbon hit in doing so. And what are the types of systems that we need to develop as designers in order for that to be viable as a solution for 
a developer or building ones. So we're looking at various different panelized versions or unitized versions where you might say panelized a window insert and then fill the field with wood fiber installation or actually panelize an entire uh, exterior cladding system that gets mounted on an existing building made completely of biogenic materials. So in our case, we'll typically prioritize wood because that's what we have in Maine. Um, but there's other biogenic materials that people are using and trying similar things with. Um, the thing we really like about the wood fiber is that you can press it to be hard enough to be like a rigid board. And that can do a lot more for you, particularly in a large-scale multifamily retrofit. You can side directly to it, things like that. It's not soft. Um, so has advantages and then sometimes pairing that with a substrate of cross-laminated timber like a thin cross-laminated timber create something that can be easily mounted on an existing building um, that's like still testing mode at this point you know we have a few developers um, through RMI that approached us to kind of look at potentially testing these things as case studies or pilot projects and we'll see where that goes but um, really excited to continue that work because I think that it's just absolutely necessary. It's not what we'd call like a, like a sexy architecture project, but it's a necessary one and somebody's got to kind of take it on. And we hope to do it. Um, we hope that more people <laughs> join the bandwagon on it because there's so much of that building stock all over the entire country that needs it. Right. This is not the kind of marketplace where one person is going no, to be able to do it all. Not. Of course not. But we need the people that are going to kind of get the ball rolling. And then we hope when you prove the model that lots of shops could pop up that could make the same thing. There's no need for it to be. And it can't be, as you said, a single entity. Doing, um, it's just vast. The amount of, of the amount of housing that's sitting there that needs that. Needs that. So we're right. Well, that's very inspiring. And I hope your vision proves out. I'm an optimist, Mary. <laughs> so I'm still, until it's proven no, it's yes. That's great. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time to come and talk. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much.